today, two runaway princesses in our leaked records, and could Pegasus have been used against UK citizens? So where do I begin? In March 2018, a video appeared on YouTube. It was of Princess Latifa bin Mohammed El Maktoum. My father is the Prime Minister of UAE and uh, the ruler of Dubai, Mohammed bin Rashid Saeed Al Maktoum. She's facing the camera in a dimly lit room. She looks anxious. You can hear her shallow breaths. She looks desperate, but determined. I'm 99% positive it will work. And if it doesn't, then this video can help me because all my father cares about is his reputation. He will kill people to protect his own reputation. She says the video is only to be released if something happens to her. And if you are watching this video, it's not such a good thing. Either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. This video is famous now. It's had millions of views. And it brought Princess Latifah's story to the world's attention. Dan Sava, he's our defence and security editor, he thought he knew that story well. It's an absolutely extraordinary story. Princess Latifah's absolutely determined that she's going to escape from Dubai. She's got very limited personal freedom. She tried to escape once before. They put me in prison and they tortured me. They told me that your father told us to beat you until we kill you. And so finally, in February 2018, she reached the point where she absolutely wants to go. Pretty soon, I'm going to be leaving somehow. And they come up with this most extraordinary Um, escape plan. Princess Latifah enlists one of her closest friends, a Finnish fitness instructor called Tina. You know, this part of the story is almost like a buddy movie, you know, Thelma and Louise. On the morning of the escape, Latifah goes to a restaurant for breakfast with Tina. She goes straight away to the toilet, changes the appearance of her hair slightly, slightly changes her dress. Latifah leaves her phone behind and essentially they hightail it to the border. They drive very, very fast and they're absolutely terrified. The women reach the water and they take a raft, but the seas are rough. They have to get picked up by jet skis, and those jet skis take them to the Nostromo. That's this yacht, skipped by another character involved in this escape, a French former naval intelligence officer, Hervé Joubert. And for a moment, they think they're home free, I think. And here's the kind of really important bit, because they do start to relax, and they think, well, we can start to communicate with people. Tina had got Latifa a couple of burner phones, and so then they started messaging people. You know, her mother, her sister, and then she starts messaging other people. And it's around this point that she starts to get paranoid. According to her friend Tina, Latifa begins to worry. Can she trust the phone in her hand? From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, The Pegasus Project, Part 4, Runaway Royals, and fears that Pegasus may have reached the UK. So, out at sea, bobbing about in the Indian Ocean, on board that yacht, are an Emirati princess, a French former spy, and Tina, the Finnish capoeira instructor. Back in Dubai, though, in the royal court, alarm is growing. This is an incredibly wealthy state, and they have an awful lot of tools at their disposal. Here's the part you haven't heard. 
We've been talking about our massive leak of phone numbers that we believe were linked to NSO customers. Here's what we see in those records in the days after Latifa fled. They make their escape on the 24th of February. The very next day, Latifa's phone number appears in our records, the phone that she left behind in that bathroom. But that's not all. Three days later, the 28th, we see three of Latifa's friends pop up. One is the number of Juan Meyer, a photographer she goes skydiving with. The second is another friend, Linda Buchiki. The same day, yet another friend appears, Shanod Taylor, a British woman living in Dubai. A day later, March 1st, that's the first day that Hervé Gerbert notices a boat following them in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And he thinks that's a bit weird, because why would someone follow me here while I'm out at sea? And, and why are they going at the same speed that I am? So something changes between February the 28th and March the 1st. The same day, we see Taylor's number appear again, along with another one of Latifa's friends from the skydiving club. What then happens is even more extraordinary in many ways. Over the next three or four days, the boats get closer and spotter planes start flying overhead as well. 2nd of March, we see the photographer's number one more time, along with Taylor and the second friend from her skydiving club. Fast forward to March the 4th, they're about mm, 20, 30 miles off the coast of Goa. A lot of what we know about what happened next on that boat comes from Latifa's friend, Tina Johanian. Yeah, we had basically been uh, on the yacht for eight days. Uh, we were about 40 miles off the coast. You know, going to bed into the downstairs cabin. So we're about, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night, 10.30 at night around them. And suddenly they just hear this loud noise, bangs. That sounded like gunshots. And suddenly the, the whole cabin was filled with smoke. Tina and Latif decide they could lock themselves in a bathroom, thinking that'll help. There's smoke everywhere. The smoke starts to come through the vents more, more, more. And they kind of get to the point where they just have to get out. When they get out, they find there's a bunch of soldiers waiting for them. Armed commandos with machine guns. They're dragged to the ground, they're separated. I was holding onto the yacht, like with my hands, the side of the ropes on the side of the yacht, I was holding onto it and they, they were pulling me off. I was fighting as hard as I could. The soldiers, it turns out, are Indian army soldiers, Indian commandos. You know, the Indian military are out at sea clearly on another desperate request from Dubai, help us out, help us out. Uh, I didn't have any weapons, I was tied, I was up against a lot of people with weapons, you know, like, it wasn't easy. And the last thing that Latifa remembers is being separated and then being drugged and injected with some kind of sedative. This guy came with a small um, pouch, like a camouflage pouch, and uh, he took out the needle and he injected me in my arm, and I was, like, fighting. I was saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And that was when she had sort of passed suddenly from the custody of Indians to the Emiratis. I thought they were going to, to kill me. Whereas Latifa was acting extremely brave. She was telling them to leave me alone and... And, and Princess Latifa's just shouting, shoot me. I don't want to be taken back. Uh, don't take me back to Dubai, just shoot me here. Princess Latifa, the daughter of Dubai's ruler, hasn't been seen for nine months. She's not been seen in public for 18 months. For three years, the world has heard nothing from Princess Latifa. I think she's in a very bad place at the moment, um, somewhere locked up. That was the last time anyone outside of the UAE saw Princess Latifa. Until June this year, when, out of the blue, new photos of her were posted on Instagram. 
We have a picture of Latifa sitting with two women in a shopping mall in Dubai, one or two others that look like they're in kind of malls or restaurants. Sometimes she's smiling, sometimes she looks a little blank. And then the final picture is a picture of her in the airport in Madrid where she's just been on some kind of holiday. The photograph is taken in the airport and that'll be one of the first time that Latifa's travelled abroad in many, many years. But um, look, the woman who's putting out a lot of these pictures and is appearing regularly is Shinod Taylor. Shinod Taylor. You remember her. For most people, that name wouldn't have meant much. But Dan Sabat had been poring over our leaked data for months. He knew exactly who that was. Yeah, it was a real light bulb moment because what we'd seen in the days after she'd escaped on the Nostromo and sort of from halfway, from halfway through the trip, one of the names that comes up again and again is Shinod Taylor. It's quite extraordinary because we also know that Shinod Taylor is one of the people that Latifa was messaging from the boat. We can't say for sure that the UAE used Pegasus to help recapture Latifa or that they even thought about it. For that, we'd need to get access to her phones and those of her friends. Pretty much impossible. What we do have are our records, which show these numbers appear day after day in the period she was on the run. And we know that in some cases, like in Hungary and in India, these leaked phone numbers have led us to phones that contain traces of Pegasus. The UAE says they were justified in pursuing Latifa because, as they saw it, she was the victim of a crime. They would say, and they've said before, that they thought she was being kidnapped and that she had to be brought back safely and that was what mattered. And of course, there have been an awful lot of questions about that especially in the light of the videos where she's saying, look, I'm incredibly unhappy here and I've been tortured and I want to get out. I'm, I'm a hostage and uh, this villa has been converted into a jail. All the windows are barred shut. I can't open any window. I've been by myself, solitary confinement, um, no access to medical help, um, no trial, no charge, nothing. And so Latifa's dragged home. She's cut off from the world again. From the perspective of the royal court, the problem might have been solved. But Latifa's story was generating waves, not just in the media, but inside the family. Back in Dubai, something else interesting starts happening. Princess Haya, one of Sheikh Mohammed's, I think, six wives, she starts to get involved to some extent. And she does manage to visit Latifa on at least one occasion. And she's starting to ask questions about Latifa and is she okay and is this right? And essentially what happens is she's kind of told in no uncertain terms to back out. But she doesn't back out. This is where David Pegg, an investigative reporter with The Guardian, takes up our story. She starts to take an interest in what's happened to Latifa. She starts trying to find out about how she's doing. She starts trying to arrange to meet her, to go and visit where she's living. And these inquiries don't go down well. Everything from here on we know from a fact-finding judgment delivered by the UK's family court. Sheikh Mohammed disputes that judgment. He says it's a one-sided account. But it says the Sheikh and Haya had been drifting apart as a couple. And this, her asking after Latifa, was one of the final straws. A few months later, Haya finds out that Sheikh Mohammed's divorced her. She loses her desk at the royal court. She feels like an outcast. Pretty soon, the things she's hearing from Sheikh Mohammed have a concern for her safety. And 
over the course of the next few months, she starts to get messages from him and the people around him in various forms. She gets a phone call from the sheikh saying that he's kind of worried about her. She starts to find firearms in her room that she didn't leave there. Court, the princess said she twice found a gun on her bed. And, and this all kind of climaxes in the spring of 2019 when unexpectedly a helicopter lands outside her house. The helicopter lands on her front lawn and a man steps out and the man says that he has come to take her to Awir. Awir is a prison in the desert in the UAE. Now, Haya is with her son there who's kind of clinging to her leg and is terrified and she tries to laugh it off even though internally she was absolutely terrified by the entire experience. She isn't taken away but this is extremely frightening to her and after this she resolves that she needs to leave Dubai. She says it's too much and it's time for me to go. She comes to London and she brings the two children with her. She's thousands of miles from Dubai now, but Sheikh Mohammed isn't letting go. She thinks he's still threatening her, sometimes in unusual ways. So Sheikh Mohammed is a kind of amateur poet. He publishes his own poetry. One of the poems that we're aware of is called Luck Strikes Once. And part of that reads, My spirit is cured of you, girl. When your face appears, no pleasure I feel. Don't say troublemakers are the ones to blame. It's your fault, though you're fairer than the moon. They say luck strikes once in a lifetime, and if you lose luck, you have no excuse. But he doesn't stop at poetry. At one point in May 2019, she says that the father threatens her directly and said, you and the children will never be safe in England. But Hyas stays there. She sets about trying to carve out a life for herself in the UK with her two children. Sheikh Mohammed has other ideas and he begins legal proceedings to try and recover custody of the children. There is now an ongoing legal case. The court undertook a fact-finding mission and essentially backed up the princess's claims. And so in that judgment, we have a very great expanse of detail as to what she says happened and, and, and what the father does or does not dispute. Princess Hire complains that she herself has been subject to this campaign of abuse, the poems, the helicopter, that sort of thing. And she also says that one of the reasons she feels she should have custody is because, effectively, Sheikh Mohammed has previously abducted Princess Latifa. So the court here is explicitly saying the Latifa case was not a national security issue. It was a daughter trying to escape her father's control. Just quoting from the judgment here, drawing these matters together, the judge says, I conclude on the balance of probability that Latifa's account of her motives for wishing to leave Dubai represents the truth. So this sounds like a particularly nasty family dispute, maybe not unusual for what you see in the UK's family courts, but our leaked records suggest another layer to this story too. What we can see in the records are that several people who are in the orbit of Princess Hire their phone numbers do appear in the records. So that includes Princess Haya herself. It also includes several aides in her household. A friend of hers, John Gosden, who's a horse racing trainer. There's another dimension to this, which is that Sheikh Mohammed is really into horse racing. He's really big in Newmarket and he owns substantial chunks of Newmarket. The Guardian's previously reported on this recently. And several people connected to a private security firm that provides her personal safety and assurance detail when she's in England. And even one of her lawyers representing Princess Hire in this custody dispute, the number appears in 2019. And the fact that it occurs at this time would suggest that this interest was being taken because of the legal dispute. Wow, so there were British numbers in these records too. 
when we started analysing these records, we're going through them page by page by page, and you start to see plus four four number 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 plus four four number number plus four four plus four four plus four four, and you realise that actually what you're looking at here is a list of of British phone numbers, and that's something that really takes you back when you first see it. I don't think that was something we'd anticipated. Okay, so we're not able to point to anyone in the UK being hacked, but leaked records showed hundreds of British citizens or numbers of people living here, didn't they? There are journalists in there. Rula Khalaf, who is the editor of the Financial Times, her number appears. Bradley Hope, who is an American investigative journalist, he was working for the Wall Street Journal. He was writing about the UAE at the time. His number appears. There are academics as well. John Chipman, who's the head of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, his number appears. Matthew Hedges, who's an academic who was researching matters relating to the UAE and was actually abducted by the UAE and he says tortured while he was held in detention there. There's a whole string of people, many of whom have taken an interest in democracy and human rights issues in the UAE. Allah al-Sadiq, who is a dissident campaigning for human rights, specifically in the United Arab Emirates, although she recently died in a car crash, which is very tragic. Another number that appears in there is that of Baroness Udin. She's a, a member of the House of Lords. Now, we're not saying all or even any of these people were hacked. We've not found any evidence of that. And NSO's lawyers have said there were no attempted or successful Pegasus infections on Ruler Kalaf's phone. But we have found evidence of Pegasus-related activity on someone's phone. Rodney Dixon is a barrister in London. He does a lot of human rights work focused on the UAE and Saudi Arabia. He presented Latifa's case to a UN panel. He was in our records. And we were able to check his phone. The results were not conclusive. There was no successful infection but we did find suspicious activity. Dixon is a British citizen, a lawyer. He handles all kinds of sensitive information. To find anything on his phone was pretty worrying. Yeah, it's completely shocking. I think when you're talking to a lawyer, you have an an expectation that uh, what you're saying to them and the legal advice you're getting is going to be private. The idea that traces of this stuff could be found on a phone is really shocking. Lawyers for NSO suggested it was technically impossible for Dixon's phone to be targeted in 2019. The Guardian understands that's because, at that time, the client we think may have been interested in him, Saudi Arabia, had its access to NSO's spyware temporarily halted. Coming up, signs of Pegasus-related activity found on a British phone. Can anything be done? Listening to the case of Rodney Dixon, that lawyer with traces of Pegasus-related activity on his phone, what I'm thinking, you may be too, is that if it's true that this powerful spyware had made some kind of contact with a UK phone, would that be legal? Could you take anyone to court? Okay, is it illegal? It's illegal. It's illegal under the Computer Misuse Act. A mobile phone is a computer for the purpose of discussion. However, in practical terms, is it prosecutable? That's not going to happen. Why? A mixture of diplomatic and political reasons. And, you know, in the end, even if you can find some named individuals you want to prosecute, you're not going to allow them to come to the UK and face any kind of justice. So why bother initiating a case? So the reality is that it might be illegal, but a criminal prosecution almost certainly won't happen. You know, the reality with espionage is it's almost always illegal. and It's highly embarrassing when it's caught. But in the end, it's a political matter and a diplomatic matter. And it will really come down to 
will the UK government have the appetite to call it out loudly and say, hang on a minute, this cannot be allowed to happen? Dan Sabo, we started by talking about these two runaway princesses. What happens to them now? Ahara is not a court case to fight, but she has a liberty and a life in London. And I don't see that changing. You know, you have to remember that she's also a member of the Jordanian royal family. And so she undeniably will be able to have a life of her own. She wants to be settled in London. She wants her children with her. And she's fighting for that. You know, her life is going to be what she wants to make of it. Latifa, actually, she's saying at the moment she'd like to be left alone after these photographs, these Instagram pictures released. Is she saying that? Her lawyers put out a short statement on her behalf and they said, you know, she wants to clarify that she's been able to travel and visit three European countries and she's okay and please leave me alone. You know, when you look back at everything that you've seen, her impassioned videos, her extraordinary attempt to escape, when you see all that, you go, surely that's the sort of settled will of Latifa that she'd like to live abroad and live what she considers to be a free life. It feels like she's reached some kind of understanding with her father to try and sort of have some level of liberty and, you know, we'll see what happens. For the past few months, as part of this project, I've worked on the phone records of NSO clients from a lot of different countries. India, Saudi Arabia, Morocco. But something about the records that we think relate to the UAE was really chilling. Hundreds of UK numbers in lists. Lists that, in some other countries, had led us to find people whose phones had been hacked with Pegasus. And there was the Dixon case. If people in London, working on human rights in other countries, are finding possible signs of Pegasus activity on their phones, is being in the UK any protection? It's not a question of whether you trust the British state with your mobile phone. It might be the question of whether you trust a whole bunch of autocratic states... This is the dramatic step change in the last few years, which is essentially there's kind of been surveillance technologies entering the mass market. It's not the mass market for you and me, but it is for governments around the world. David, we started this series with me saying that I felt like my phone was now some kind of intruder. What about you? Will you change your relationship with your phone? Do you think we all should? It already has changed my relationship with my phone. There are certain things I do with my work phone now that are different. I've just turned iMessage off. I think it's too vulnerable, personally. You know, everyone is going to have to think about and it's relevant as is relevant to them. And part of the problem here is that it's totally unreasonable to expect the ordinary person to be able to run their own kind of information security risk assessment. This is something that they rely on Apple or Google or governments to think about. This is What we need is a, is a political or a technical solution to this problem. Uh, the ordinary person should not have to use a mobile phone and constantly be second-guessing themselves, asking if somebody else is watching them. That was David Pegg and Dan Saber. We've reached out to NSO Group, which says it cannot see how customers use its Pegasus spyware, that Pegasus is only supposed to be used to prevent terrorism and serious crime, and that clients sign contracts agreeing to these terms when they purchase a licence. The company said the leak of records could not be a list of numbers, quote, targeted by governments using Pegasus, and described the 50,000 figure as exaggerated. NSO also says it can't identify its government clients, but a source familiar with the company's operations has confirmed that within the past year, the company has stripped Dubai of its Pegasus licence. Princess Haya declined to comment. 
a German lawyer representing Sheikh Mohammed, told the newspaper, Süddeutsche Zeitung, that his client emphatically denied having attempted to hack anyone mentioned in this story. Tomorrow, in the final episode of The Pegasus Project, we go around the world to look at the impact of these revelations and the future of the private spyware industry. That's all for today. The Guardian continues to publish new revelations from our leaked records, including the appearance of the phone number of Pavel Durov, the founder of the secure messaging app Telegram. That's all at theguardian.com. The Pegasus Project has been reported by Stephanie Kirsch-Gussner in Washington, Paul Lewis, David Pegg, Dan Sabah and Sam Cutler in London, Nina Lacani in Mexico City, Sean Walker in Budapest, Angelique Christophus in Paris, Martin Hodgson in New York, and me, Michael Safi. This episode was produced by Ned Carter-Miles. Original music and sound design by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Nicole Jackson and Phil Maynard. <laughs>